please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. And we're finishing the sermon series on Judges this morning. So we've been in this pretty much all year. Uh, to give you a heads up on where we're going next, ends on the nativity story, some of those prophecies and passages in the gospel that talk about the incarnation and how God comes to be with us, Emmanuel. Uh, comes to dwell in the midst of this world that he has created, but a world that's not necessarily excited to, to host him or have him around. And then we're going to jump into Colossians and Philemon in the new year, and we'll spend uh, a number of months going through that. So one of my main prayer requests for y'all and for myself is that God would cultivate appetites in us for his word. So all throughout the week that we would be craving the word of God. Sometimes I'll pray, God, I pray that the, the flock of ECPC would be so voraciously craving the word and that we'd be, we'd be partaking of the word so, so intensely that our phones would be jealous because we would, we would, we would be neglecting our phones because our, we'd, our attention would be on the word. That's how Jesus talked about the word. He said, you know, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, not, not just physical food and worldly resources, but the, by the bulletin on page five, uh, there's reflection questions at the bottom. You'll see there's a list of scriptures down there in the fourth question. So I would very sincerely invite you guys to go look up those passages, really feast on what God is re revealing there. I mentioned in the call to worship, read Isaiah 55, and knowing that we're going to go to Colossians and Philemon in the months ahead, I would invite you to go ahead and start reading and pondering what God is revealing to us through those letters of Paul. All right, we're going to stand now as I read this last section of Judges 21 for us, starting in verse 8. Put your full attention on this, this word. This is active and living. This is the word of God. Judges chapter 21, verse 8. And they said, what one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction." And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimmon, and they proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive from the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters for the people had, of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin." the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each 
man, his wife, from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Jesus, we do indeed live by the power and the availability of your word. We, we dupe ourselves when we think that we need all these worldly resources primarily, or we need the approval or the validation or attention that comes from mere mortals. What we really deeply need is the approval that comes from God. What we need is the scandalous grace of the gospel, which tells us that we are free from ourselves And we are invited into your lavish love. And there is no condemnation for us in Christ. Really, life boils down to whether or not we're going to live in accordance with what feels naturally wise or right to us. Or are we going to grab hold of the mystery of your grace and partake of the mercy that we find in the scriptures in Christ alone? We pray that we would be drawn to Jesus as a result of studying your word and singing these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs together this morning, that we would be more in love with Jesus and that we would really rely on the grace that we find in Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let's talk a little bit about your dreams. And I'm not talking about your hopes and dreams. Uh, I'm referencing the dreams that you have while you're asleep. And I think we can all admit there's some unsettling content in our, in our dreams. Our dreams are, are full of all kinds of questionable stuff. There's disturbing details in our dreams. And I'm not even talking about the, the really intense dreams, the nightmares necessarily. Even the relatively tame dreams can sometimes be very convoluted and full of questionable content. So for example, I have this reoccurring dream where I'm back in school, most likely in college. Sometimes I go all the way back to high school and I find out that I'm enrolled in a class, but I have no idea. A friend or a fellow classmate will say, hey, have you studied for that midterm? We got that test coming up and I will freak out. I will feel so panicked and anxious because I'll think, I didn't even know I was in that class. So of course I haven't been attending class. I haven't done any of the work, any of the assignments or projects for that class. I have not been studying for this looming midterm that my friend is referencing. And so I'm panicked, I'm anxious, and in my dream, I go to the professor, and I try to explain the scenario to the professor. Maybe they'll, they'll cut me some slack, they'll show me some sympathy. This is a very out-of-the-ordinary kind of situation. And in my dream, the professor does not budge. The professor is a stickler for the rules. The professor says, you should have known you were in this class. The, you know, the letter of the law states, you're on the hook for this. This is your responsibility, so they're not going to budge. And so then I have, to, I have to come up with some shady ways of working the system. 
I've got to come up with a way to find a loophole to, to cheat the system so that I don't fail this class. Um, I've mentioned before from the pulpit that I've been watching a lot of the television show Suits. So some of what Harvey Specter would do has worked its way into my dreams, apparently. Because in recent weeks and months, um, I, I will sometimes like try to dig up dirt on the professor. Because I'll think, okay, the professor's not budging. So I will find some skeleton in the closet, and then I will present them with this information, and I will blackmail them. I will say, you know, you're blaming me for not studying and knowing that I was in this class. Well, I blame you for this thing you had in your past. And I will go public with that unless you unless you work with me on this. It's, it's all very convoluted. It's crazy. So eventually I wake up, and immediately, I, I'm sure y'all have had this before, you had an intense dream, and you wake up, and you think, thank goodness, it wasn't real life. You're so relieved. It's, it's not my real life. But what if it was? Like, what if you were living your dream? Not in a good way. Not living the dream in any positive sense of that expression. But what if you were living your real dreams? That would be very disturbing. Well, I think that's what God's showing us here in Judges 21. The people of God have been pursuing a dream ever since the third chapter of Scripture. What's the dream? Satan comes to Eve and he says, the dream scenario is that you could be the boss of your life. You could be God. You could do what is right in your own eyes. Imagine how wonderful that would be. That's the dream scenario, right? And so we went for it. Adam and Eve, they, they took the bait and they pursued this dream of doing what is right in their own eyes. And what were the first fruits of living that dream? Well, shame. They were naked and very ashamed of themselves. And because they felt so insecure and riddled with shame, they tried to compensate by shifting the blame. So the first fruits of living this dream life are shame and blame. And we see that in a big way in this final scene in the book of Judges. The first thing you see the Israelites doing in this final scene of the stories of Judges is they, they want to punish someone. Uh, you go back in the story and you see that the Israelites, they've carried out this holy war against the Benjaminites because there were these crimes that were committed in Benjaminite territory in the, in the town of Gibeah. But I think the Israelites, they're realizing they got a little carried away in that holy war. They, they went too far. And now they're feeling some measure of shame. You know, God was, God was with them in giving Benjamin a consequence, but then they took some matters into their own hands. They did what was right in their own eyes. And, and they realized, you know, we sort of inordinately punished Benjamin. There were some areas where we went too far. And so now they're feeling ashamed and they're looking for someone to blame. And they don't want to bear the blame. They don't want to feel the weight of this, this guilt, the shame that they're feeling. And so they're going to shift that blame. There's clearly a deficit. You know, the tribe of Benjamin is on the brink of extinction. And so someone needs to pay this deficit. So the Israelites decide they're going to blame this people group in Jabesh Gilead. They're not going to confess their sin and plead with God for mercy and cry out to God for guidance. That's nowhere in this passage. They're just going to blame Jabesh Gilead. And they justify this punishment by saying, well, we all took an oath to show up at Mizpah. We all took that oath. And by the letter of the law, Jabesh Gilead did not come through on that. 
So they justify the blame they're going to put on Jabesh Gilead by saying, well, they didn't adhere to the policy, to the oath that we had established. In my preparation for this week's sermon, I got to learn a fun new word, casuistry. Y'all know this word? I didn't know this word either. Casuistry. It's the use of clever but unsound reasoning to justify what you're about to do, especially in areas of, of moral questions. So we engage in casuistry all the time. We want to justify what feels right to us. We want to justify a course of action that, that's probably questionable. So we come up with this very creative, self-serving way of, of doing that. And one of the premier ways that you see this happening in life is by, by using God's law and following it to the letter of the law, which is something Jesus hates, by the way. When, when God takes on flesh and dwells amongst us, he, he has the most intense criticism of the people uh, in the religious community who are letter of the lawers. They, they don't adhere to the spirit of the law, the primary substance of the law, but they take God's law and they follow it as, as a policy. And it's very, very damaging. It's very destructive. We see uh, all kinds of examples of what I call policyism in, in our lives and in our world. Um, I was recently listening to the stand-up comedian Nate Bergazzi. Y'all like Nate Bergazzi? Nate, I, here, a side note about comedians. I don't think we enjoy comedians just because they're funny. That's true. But I think the brilliance, kind of the prophetic power of, of comedians is that they are pointing things out that are simply true, like absurdities in life that we can all immediately resonate with. And, and part of what's funny about it is that we can all say, yes, that has happened to me a lot, or I've witnessed that in many occasions, and it's so true. So what, what really gets to us, what resonates with us is not just it's funny, it's articulated in a humorous way, but there's something deeply true about what they're saying or observing. So Nate Bergazzi, he's talking about this scenario where he's at the airport and he's trying to check a bag. And he goes to the guy at the counter and he shows him his ticket and the guy asks to see his driver's license. And the guy looks at Nathan's ticket and then he notices his driver's license says Nathaniel and the ticket guy goes, ooh, this is not good. He says, these, these names... These names don't match. And Nate says, yeah, but they match. And he says, I mean, you can see the leap we took to get from one to the other, right? And Nate says, you know, I was trying to work with this guy, but he's holding to the letter of the law. I, I, just, can't, I can't crack his, his adherence to the policy here. And he says, as I'm talking with this guy, I realize, you know, there, there is no way he can find out that people actually refer to me as Nate. Because if he does... He's going to like call security over and say, hey, this guy, this terrorist is trying to travel with three names. I don't know if you just want to shoot him from over there. I mean, clearly he's a security threat, you know, because it's just, it's so ridiculous how, how we, we hone in on certain letter of the law, policy-esque things, and it just makes life miserable. And that's what the Israelites are doing. They're saying, according to the policy, Jabesh Gilead needs to pay. But that's not really at the heart of, what, of what's true and what needs to happen here, right? I mean, if, if they're going to follow the policy, I mean, I think the policy would involve some kind of, well, before we launch an invasion of 12,000 warriors to, to just wipe out an entire community, maybe we should ask some questions, maybe, maybe conduct an investigation. But you don't see any of that because they're just trying to, to remedy this problem of 
compensating the Benjaminites for having previously gone too far in their holy war against the Benjaminites. So they invade with an army of 12,000 troops, no investigation, they ask no questions, they wipe everybody out except for these 400 virgins. It's very, very self-serving. And again, what, what, would the, what would the alternatives be? Well, the Israelites could have, they could have pled with God for mercy. They could have gone to God and said, hey, we are in the wrong here. And so first thing we need to do is confess our sin. And then we need to cry out to the Lord to have mercy on us because we've really made a mess of our lives. And so we need God to show up with his mercy. And then we need God to help give us some guidance. But, you, but again, you don't see any of that in this chapter. That's not what the Israelites are doing because they just want a scapegoat. They just want to shift this shame and this blame onto somebody else. Perhaps some of y'all know the name Brene Brown. She's a, a qualitative researcher. She's an author, a speaker. She has this great, she has this great speech on blame, how, how blame is like second nature to us. It's so hardwired in us and it's instinctive. Brene tells this story about how she's, she's up in the morning. She has a cup of coffee. She has another cup of coffee. She's, she's walking with this second cup of coffee and she drops it on the floor and it shatters. The coffee mug shatters and then it splatters up onto her pants and they're white pants. And so she's just very upset and this is very inconvenient. And she said, Instantly, the first words out of my mouth when I dropped that coffee mug was, darn you, Steve. But she didn't use the word darn. Steve's her husband. And she says, so, so here, within a blink of an eye, here's what I thought. I was up late the night before because Steve was out playing water polo with his friends. And before Steve left, I said, I need you home early, like as early as you can get home, because I can't go to sleep until I know you're home and you're safe. And you know, he had stayed out later with his friends than, than she would have preferred. So she stayed up later waiting for him to get home. And then she woke up and needed a second cup of coffee because she was a little sleepier. And see, this is all Steve's fault. And she uses this as an illustration to, to point out this, this is so hardwired into us. We want to shift the blame. We want to punish somebody else. What I like about that story is that it really does illustrate the ordinary, everyday way. We are just always looking to shift the shame and shift the blame onto somebody else. You know, and really this crops up anytime you feel small. Anytime you feel sort of threatened or vulnerable or maybe inadequate or incompetent, you know that this shame-blame dynamic is going to start to, to surface in your life. So you got to be you got to be aware of that and be mindful of that. I'll give you an example from my life. Um, in this small home improvement project that needs tended to. Anytime like there's a new light fixture to be installed or just anything around the house, I immediately start feeling really inadequate and insecure because I'm that guy who's not that handy. And I'm going to try, and what should take 10 minutes ends up taking like five or six hours. And I just feel so emasculated by this. I feel so insecure and weak. And so what comes with that is I get irritable. And I get sort of defensive and cranky. And so my wife has to tread very lightly. Like if she gets some new thing for me to install, she has to be like, now don't freak out, but I'd like you to try to install this thing. <laughs> right? Because that's, that's really hard for me. 
I know, I know many of you, it feels this way in your marriage. You, you thought, you know, I'm going to get married to this person. The two of us shall become one flesh and we'll live together. We'll raise kids together and it'll just get easy. Like I'll have this person figured out. And then you're, you're married like 15, 20, 30 years and you're like, it's like it's getting harder. Like basic conversations actually seem kind of difficult. And it's clear the longer we go on in this thing called marriage, it's actually really challenging to, to live as one flesh with another person. And some really basic ways that you would assume it's just, it would be easy to communicate constructively. It's not so easy. And it can cause you to feel very vulnerable. And what happens in that dynamic? Well, you're going to do a lot of self-justifying and blaming and shifting you know, the, the, the criminal sort of focus to somebody else because you feel threatened, you feel small. You might feel this way in parenting. You think, wow, there's just so many areas of life, especially parenting, where it doesn't, it just doesn't cater to my craving to feel in control. You know, I have these people in my life, my children, that I care deeply about. And there are just so many instances where I can't make choices for them. I can't control what's going on in their lives. And it's, it's, very, uh, it's a very vulnerable experience time and time again. Maybe it's just you're going through elementary school, middle school, high school, college, just all these new phases and stages of life. And at every turn, there's just stuff you don't know and you feel small. You feel weak. You feel inadequate or incompetent. And it's very vulnerable. And those are the moments. That's, that's like the rich soil for this dynamic of shifting shame and blame onto somebody else. So the Israelites are trying to compensate for that feeling. That's what they're trying to do. It's a very unhealthy, sort of nightmarish way to try to compensate, but that's clearly what they're doing. And they're also trying to compensate the Benjaminites. They're trying to provide something for the Benjaminites because this tribe is on the brink of extinction. So we see this attempt at provision. Look at verse 13 and following. The Israelites present the Benjaminites with these 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead. This is a peace offering. This is uh, the Israelites saying, look, we took it a little too far in the previous story, the, the war against y'all. And, and so this is a gesture of compassion. We don't want y'all to go extinct. We want to try to help rebuild your tribe. This is an attempt to compensate, or it's a first installment of some version of provision. But this, this installment of provision is happening in the days of the judges. So it's not going to be an edifying version of provision, most likely. Israel's living the dream, the dream of that era when everybody just does what is right in their own eyes. And so this version of provision is at best going to be very convoluted. Another dream I have had, this isn't a reoccurring one, but I've had a dream where I, I don't know how I got them, but I, I somehow, for some reason, have a box of sticky notes, like a big box. And it's not like pads, it's like individual already peeled off sticky notes, just loosely in the box. And you know how when you're a kid, you'll go out to the corner and you'll do a lemonade stand? Well, in this dream, I'll go out with the box of sticky notes and I'll try to sell the sticky notes. It's... This is the kind of stuff. And so I'm out there trying to sell sticky notes, and this will surprise you. Nobody wants them. <laughs> nobody, nobody is stopping to buy individual pre-peeled off sticky notes. Nobody's, nobody's interested in that, right? It's not, it's not really a helpful kind of provision to make. Well, this is, this is sort of like that. The, the Israelites, they're trying so hard to provide something, but it's not the most edifying, the most, the most 
constructive way to attempt to provide. And y'all feel this way sometimes. Have you ever felt like you needed to, to compensate, like you needed to provide something, but the way you went about providing wasn't actually all that helpful? So for example, uh, you went to someone, they were going through a hard situation, and you had brilliant ideas on how to solve their problem. You, you said, I'm going to provide you with a solution. I'm going to provide you with really, really sound advice. And all they wanted was to be heard. They, ju they just wanted someone to listen. And, and just, they wanted to be able to vent and kind of process their situation. They didn't need you to swoop in with your, your impressive advice or solution. Or maybe uh, you're having a fight with your spouse or a friend and uh, they present you with some way of explanation. That'll help, right? I'll just explain to you how, why, why you shouldn't feel hurt or offended by me. You know, maybe it would have been better just to say, I'm, I'm sorry. I was wrong. But, but no, you, you decided you're going to provide an explanation, a justification for why you did or said what you did or said. Uh, sometimes I'll do this with my wife. I'll try to provide support. Like the kids will be you know, offering some resistance. You know, we don't have perfect kids and they'll be like not complying with some command that she's given to them. And then I'll like swoop in from another room and start barking at the kids. Like, you know, give her backup. And she's like, that, that's not actually that helpful. Like I see you're trying to provide, <laughs> but that's not actually providing much by way of helpfulness. Uh, maybe you try to provide rescue for people, like you have sort of a savior complex. You're going to save people. People are in a, a hard situation. You're going to swoop in. You're going to be the hero, and you're going to bail them out. And, and maybe what they need is just to kind of deal with the consequences of some of their bad choices. They don't, they don't always need you to swoop in and save the day. Or maybe you try to provide good works. Like sometimes um, wives, you know, you're having kind of a, a hard day. It's just you're stressed out. You're disappointed with something. And your husbands, they just can't deal with that. Like they take your disappointment and your stress as a personal affront to their, their identity as a provider. So, so in the face of you just having a hard day, instead of just giving you the freedom to have a hard day, they'll say, well, I did the dishes. You know, I'm, I'm providing you some evidence of like maybe why you shouldn't be so sad or stressed out today and it's not all that helpful all kinds of ways we're trying to compensate we're trying to provide and it's not always that helpful but that's what's going on here um, living the dream as as it is displayed here in the book of judges the nightmare oftentimes living that dream is is to offer a version of provision that just is an attempt to make yourself feel better and it's not really about serving the other person so, for example, I can't imagine that these girls from Jabesh Gilead or these girls from Shiloh feel great about this particular provision. I imagine these ladies feel like they've just been oppressed. They've been attacked. They've been abused. It doesn't feel like much of a provision from their perspective. I mean, this is going to be really, really awkward at best. I mean, imagine you're at a party and there's a Benjaminite with, you know, one of these girls from Jabesh Gilead or Shiloh. And you, you know, you're trying to be friendly and you say, hey, well, how y'all met? Tell me the story of how y'all met. And this girl from Shiloh says, well, there, there was this annual festival that my family and I go to every year. And I went out to just dance. And this guy ran out from the vineyard. And he just picked me up and ran off with me. And that's how we met. That, that's where our relationship began. And yes, I mean, this is, that is so disturbing and so distressing. But the way the author of Judges is presenting it to us 
In addition to being disturbing, it's also very, like, satirical. Not to make light of the distressing nature of this content, but the, the author's saying it is absurd how if we subscribe to a system of just doing what's right in our own eyes, it is absurd what we will come up with by way of provision. Like, this seems like a good plan. And that's how this reads. Israel is so desensitized as you read this, you get the, you get the impression that they really think that this is a solid approach. You know, like, we've got a situation, we've got to figure out a plan, and they come up with this plan, and they think, yeah, mission accomplished. This, this should work. And it's absurd. That's the feel. That's the vibe of this story. It just sort of ends with, well, these guys snatch the girls from Shiloh, and then everybody just moves back home, and it's like, well, that's, that should take care of it. It's crazy. You know, the way the author of Judges tells this story, it's kind of like how like Saturday Night Live will poke fun at America. Because, you know, America, it's a great nation. It is. But it is so flawed. It is so imperfect. And there are some things that we need to point out about our great nation that it's like, that's crazy on, on a lot of issues in, in this country. Recently, Nate Bergazzi, a comedian I mentioned earlier, he hosted SNL. And there was this skit where he played George Washington. So it's the Revolutionary War. you got these soldiers sitting around this, this fire pit, and they're talking about the, the war, and they're talking about the dream of, of this great nation that's going to that's gonna form on the other side of the Revolutionary War. And George Washington shows up, and the, the troops, you know, they've got their, their commander-in-chief there with them now, and uh, he's trying to encourage them. Right? He's trying to give them uh, a vision of this great nation that they're fighting for. Blood's being shed to build this great dream of America. And he says, you know, we dream of, of a nation where we, we will have liberty, we will choose our own leaders, and, and we will have the freedom to choose, and then he says, our own system of weights and measures. And then he goes, I mean, it's, it's SNL, so you know they're going to be funny. He says, you know, instead of using kilometers like everyone else in the world, we will be free to use miles. Instead of using, you know, meters, we will, will use yards, you know. And all the while, there's, there's a black soldier there. And he keeps asking, what about the slaves? Like, is there freedom for the slaves? And then George Washington will say, you asked about the temperature. We will not use Celsius, like everybody else in the world. We will use this convoluted, nonsensical measurement called Fahrenheit. You know? And all the while, there are like things that need to be addressed and provided for, but our dream is going to speak to all these other very, very weird, abstract ideas. And we do it all in the name of like, we're going we're gonna to really preserve. We're going to build something that lasts. I mean, that's, that's at the heart of our dream, to blame shift we're going to justify ourselves and we're going to provide in all kinds of ways so that, so that we can really build something that lasts, something that will be preserved. And that's a big motif in this story. Verse 17, you see the emphasis on preservation. You see the Israelites are saying, we have to preserve Benjamin. You know, one of the tribes of Israel is about to be blotted out. They're about to go extinct. So, so we have to preserve them so that Israel as a whole will be protected and preserved. But in verse 18, there is this acknowledgement that, well, but it's tricky because we've established all these tedious policies and we're too proud to simply say we're wrong and to cry out for God's mercy. So they have to come up with this convoluted way, this completely absurd way to preserve their own honor by not attacking Shiloh outright 
And simultaneously, they need to preserve the integrity and honor of the Shiloh community because those guys can't just give their, their daughters knowingly to the, the people of Benjamin. So they say, here's what we'll do. Verse 22. In, in the spirit and in the name of preserving this great nation Israel, we will advise that the Benjaminites go steal daughters from Shiloh during the festival. And when the, the men of Shiloh come complaining, because obviously they will, because we just snatched their daughters from this very peaceful festival they were having, we'll simply explain to them the situation. We'll sit them down and we'll say, listen, number one, we didn't attack you, so I don't know what you're so bothered about. You know, we could have attacked you like we did Jabesh Gilead. We have these 12,000 warriors. I mean, they're still, they're still geared up and ready to go. We could have attacked you, so relax. Could have been way worse. Furthermore, you should be thanking us because you didn't give your daughters in marriage to the Benjaminites knowingly. So we've actually looked out for your own honor. Right now you have deniability. You shouldn't be complaining. You should be thanking us. So just go with it. And in this way, Israel, their delusional, convoluted rationale is, in this way we will preserve and we will protect Israel, the great nation, God's people. And listen, y'all, we're not that much different. We, we have so many absurd strategies for preserving and protecting ourselves or the things we care about. We really do. For example, we think that we're, we are going to preserve and protect our dignity or our, our reputation by getting really defensive all the time. Like if anybody makes a joke at my expense, I have to get sarcastic and take myself seriously and, and respond defensively. Because my, my thought is then that, that will be what protects my dignity and, and my, my reputation. When the reality is, if you can't laugh at yourself, <laughs> your, your reputation's not, not very worth protecting. Like if you take yourself seriously all the time and you can't laugh at yourself, you don't have any humility, you're actually robbing your, yourself of dignity. <laughs> or what about this? I'm going to protect myself and my status by being really paranoid all the time, always anxious and always wondering, what are people saying about me? What are they thinking of me? How am I being perceived? I'm going, to, I'm going to protect my status by being paranoid all the time about my status. Light, lighten up. You're doing the opposite of preserving your status. If it's any status worth being preserved. You see this in a really illustrative way in the first king of Israel. You know, it's no coincidence, this book, Judges, we go through a, a short book of Ruth, and then we're right into 1 Samuel. And you know, the first king of Israel, it's this guy Saul. He's a Benjaminite. And you see, in the Benjaminite King Saul, old habits die hard because Saul is one of the most paranoid, insecure people presented to us in all of Scripture. And he's all about protecting his status and protecting his identity and protecting his honor and preserving his empire. And he is one of the most unhealthy people presented to us in all of Scripture. And he thinks he's, he's doing a good job of preserving and protecting himself and the nation, but he's not. And again, we do this in all kinds of ways. Uh, we think we're going to protect and preserve ourselves by adopting this, this posture or this strategy in life to never feel needy. You know, I, I know what it, 
what it means to be a solid, preserved person. I will never, ever feel needy. I'll keep my cards close to the vest. I won't ever be too vulnerable with anybody because that will prove how, how competent I am, how not needy I am. And God's word, in contrast with that, says, but you are needy. You're like sheep. So the worst thing you could do if you're actually trying to preserve yourself is to depend on yourself and, and just bottle everything up and, and pretend to be self-sufficient. That would be the worst way to actually accomplish preservation. If, if you want to be truly preserved, you need to surrender your life to the shepherd because the fact is sheep are needy and you are so consistently compared with sheep. Or what about never failing? Right? I, I never want to fail. I want to protect myself from ever, ever failing. But we all know that the things that, that teach you the most in life come through what? Failure. You learn way more from taking risks, you know, not having it all figured out, totally under control, and sometimes you fail. But the takeaway is that you're so much stronger from those episodes of failure. So you're actually not doing yourself any favors by always and forever avoiding all the risks and all of the potential failures. What, what about you know, protecting our, our culture, protecting our community by being really religiously uptight? Well, that's what the Pharisees were doing, right? In the gospel accounts, there, there were these conservative theologians, the Pharisees, and they had very rigorous religious standards and just precise theological standards and they said, we're, we're doing this in the name of protecting the, the community. And Jesus said, you're not actually protecting anybody. You're making people twice the sons of the devil that you yourselves are by being legalistic and uptight and taking yourself so seriously all the time. What about money? You know, you want to protect yourself. You've got to have a lot of money. You're doing yourself all kinds of favors by having as much money as you can, right? That is how you'll preserve your life and then Jesus says, no, if you realize you could have so much money that you would build additional barns to house your money. And the response of God would be, you are acting like a fool. Because it's not about your, your worldly resources. It's about your soul. You're actually making life harder on yourself by hoarding wealth. It's easier for camels to squeeze through eyes of teensy-weensy sewing needles than for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you think that money is the thing that's going to really give you security and protection, you are wrong. Jesus and the author of Judges are very deliberately driving us to see the absurdity of our strategies and our systems of preservation, provision, and punishment. And the Bible is all about driving us to see our need so that we would turn to Jesus. So that we would surrender this foolish, this foolish strategy and desire to always lean on our own understanding, do what's right in our own eyes. And instead, we would lean on Jesus. We, we would see that we need to be saved from ourselves, saved from this system of being wise in our own sight. And we need Jesus to govern us. And we really do practically need to see how Jesus speaks to all these categories. We need to be thoroughly captivated and compelled by the way Jesus speaks to these categories. So how does Jesus speak to the category of punishment? Jesus says punishment's actually a big theme in Scripture. There, there is a price that needs to be paid. 
Punishment is a thing. So what's Jesus' answer to the big question of punishment? He says, you need to see that I will bear the blame. Blame does need to be shifted and it needs to land on somebody to be punished in your place. Listen, guys, I know I reference this story in the Bible too much, but I'm going to do it again. In John chapter 4, this lady, what was she afraid of? That Samaritan woman, what was she afraid of? Well, she was afraid of being exposed because if she was exposed, she was going to be condemned, right? She, she was going to feel the weight of condemnation. If people really knew all the, all the bad stuff of her life, and then what happens? She meets God, and yes, he tells her everything that she is ashamed of about her past. He reveals it all to her. He exposes her, but not so that she would then be condemned. Why is it that after she talks to Jesus, she has more freedom than she's ever had? How is it that she has this confidence and this liberty to go to her community, whom she's been avoiding for years, and say, come and meet this man who will tell you everything you've ever done. All the things you are afraid of people knowing about you. He will expose all those things. But the beauty the glory, the liberating power is that in light of all my crimes and all the things that I'm ashamed of, there is no condemnation. And you've got to come meet him. You've got to come taste and see how good this is. And that's the provision of Jesus. That's how Jesus speaks to provision. He says, if you come to me, you will experience true life to the fullest. Because your, your life's not about creating your own identity anymore. Right? We scramble and we fret and we are anxious all the time about our identity. And I've got to cultivate my own identity. And Jesus says, no, you're going to die. You're going to be crucified. Your, your life is no longer going to be about who you say you are. Your identity is going to be infinitely rooted in who I say you are. I'm going to unite you to myself. You're going to become my wife. You're going to take my name. You're going to become a co-heir with me, which speaks to how God sees and speaks to pr preservation. What, what's the narrative of preservation if you come to Jesus? He says, well, you have resurrection preservation. You have an inheritance that is eternal, undefiled, and unchangeable preservation. Think about that, y'all. We, we want things to last. Like, we want things that will really be for sure preserved. Jesus says, if you follow me, I will take you through death and we will emerge more glorious because that's the reality of the resurrection. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. The Bible says he has caused us to be born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So the point of all of this, the, the, the whole storyline of the book of Judges it's all about God saying, wake up, wake up, stop living this dream where you get to do what's right in your own eyes. That will lead nowhere good. And I'm going to tell you things that are shocking to startle you, to force you to wake up. I'm going to say things in satirical ways to force you to see the absurdity of this strategy of living in accordance with what is wise in your own sight. And the whole point of all of that is that you would wake up and cling to Jesus and say, I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. 
But in all my ways, I'm going to acknowledge Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be reminded of who I am in Jesus. I'm going to relish that there is no condemnation in Jesus. I am a co-heir. The ballast of my life, my life that's going to be the, the, the system, the way by which I live. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this, this whole year of being able to go through these stories in Judges. You tell us that every part of Scripture is, is active, it's alive, it's profitable for training us, for teaching us. And we pray that it, it would land with us in that way. We would be shaped by the story information. It would be life-giving to us. Uh, we pray that the reality of Jesus, uh, our best friend, our king, our shepherd, that that would, that that would really be the focal point of our life. Uh, the most dominant influence in our life, we pray, by the power of your spirit, would be the influence of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.